Hello, and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 58. Our story begins in the vast plains of Nebraska, a seemingly ordinary landscape that would soon be marred by a spree of violence that shocked the nation. Charles Starkweather, a brooding and troubled young man, would embark on a killing spree that would forever etch his name into the depths of criminal history. But who was Charles Starkweather? What drove this seemingly average young man to commit a series of heinous crimes that would leave an indelible mark on the American psyche? Join us as we peel back the layers of his life, exploring the tumultuous events that led to a deadly rampage that gripped the United States in fear. In the quiet city of Lincoln, Nebraska, a storm was brewing in the form of a troubled young man named Charles Starkweather. Born on November 24, 1938, Charles was the fourth child in a working-class family of seven. His father, Guy, a carpenter battling rheumatoid arthritis, and his mother, Helen, working as a waitress to make ends meet. Starkweather's early life was marked by adversity. His legs were misshapen due to a mild birth defect, and a speech impediment made him the target of relentless bullying in school. But as fate would have it, the gym became his refuge, a place where he could unleash the rage that had been building inside him. Charles, once a well-behaved teen, began to transform. His high school friend, Bob Von Bush, remembers the dichotomy. A kind and fun-loving person on one side, and a cruel and mean-spirited individual on the other. According to Alan in Starkweather, the story of a mass murderer, Bob said, He could be the kindest person you've ever seen. He'd do anything for you if he liked you. He was a hell of a lot of fun to be around, too. Everything was just one big joke to him. But he had this other side. He could be mean as hell. Cruel. If he saw some poor guy on the street who was bigger than he was, better looking or better dressed, he tried to take the poor bastard down to his size. As Starkweather's violent tendencies escalated, so did his disconnect from his family. His father Guy admitted to having pushed him into a window, and Guy's marriage eventually crumbled, ending in divorce on the grounds of extreme cruelty. Despite his challenging upbringing, Starkweather found solace in an unexpected place, the movies. Inspired by the rebellious spirit of actor James Dean, he began to emulate the iconic figure. But as Charles dropped out of high school and took on odd jobs, his life took a darker turn. In 1956, at the age of 18, Charles would cross paths with Carol Ann Fugate, a 13-year-old girl. Fugate's older sister was friends with Starkweather's ex, who managed to introduce them. Given that 16 was the legal age of consent in Nebraska, Starkweather's relationship with Carol Ann was predatory in nature. Any physical contact between the two, regardless of whether it was consenting, would be regarded by the law as statutory rape. Apart from the legitimacy of their relationship, Charles and Carol were close quite soon. It's said that Charles used his father's vehicle to teach her how to drive. But Charles would get into a fight with his family after Carol crashed his car and Charles eventually would be kicked out of his family home. Despite their problematic age difference, the two became infatuated with each other, setting the stage for a tragic partnership that would capture the nation's attention. Charles would begin working as a garbage collector, and would plan in his head robberies while on his pickups. However, it would be the next year that he would commit his very first murder, 
which marked the start of his true criminal streak. We've arrived now at a pivotal moment, the first murder that would set off a chain reaction of violence. The bitter winds of December 1957 were howling through the raw Nebraska night, as Charles, fueled by a desire for revenge, set his plan into motion. Just the day before, Charles had been humiliated at a gas station when he couldn't afford a stuffed toy dog for his girlfriend, Carol. Enraged and determined to settle the score, he armed himself with a 12-gauge shotgun he had acquired and a bag of shells. His target? The gas station attendant that had refused to allow him to buy the toy on credit. Robert Colvert, a 21-year-old, had unknowingly crossed paths with the brewing storm that was Charles Starkweather. Colvert, working alone at the Crest Service Station, was completely unaware that his life was about to take a tragic turn. Charles entered the station, buying cigarettes and leaving, but would return only a few minutes later. This time, his intentions were far more sinister. Donned in a disguise with a bandana covering his face and a hunter's hat concealing his hair, he raised the loaded shotgun and pressed it against Culver's back. With chilling precision, Charles would force Colbert to hand over the contents of the cash drawer. Unsatisfied, he demanded access to the safe, but Colbert, with genuine fear in his eyes, could not provide the combination. Frustrated but determined, Charles decided to make off with the cash he had and took Colbert along for the ride. As they drove towards the outskirts of Lincoln, a sinister plan unfolded. Starkweather made Colbert get out of the car, claiming later that a struggle had ensued. In the end, Robert Colvert lay lifeless on a deserted gravel road with a close-range shotgun blast to the back of his head, sealing his fate. On December 1st, 1957, the discovery of Colvert's body sent shockwaves through the community. $100 in bills and loose change had been taken from the gas station, leaving detectives and the town grappling with the unthinkable. Was this a work of a local? Or had a transient drifter passed through the city, leaving tragedy in his wake? After his initial euphoria subsided, Charles faced some harsh facts. He had lost his job as a garbage man. His landlady had locked him out of his apartment due to unpaid rent. And both Carol and his family were vehemently opposed to their relationship and made every effort to end it. The Bartlett's Marion and Velma... Carol's parents again were opposed to their daughter's relationship with the then 19-year-old Starkweather. And on a fateful day in January 21, 1958, after numerous warnings for Starkweather to stay away, he arrived at the Bartlett residence, confronted once again, this time by Carol's parents. The situation escalated into unspeakable horror. Starkweather, fueled by rage, shot Marion and Velma to death, and then turned his brutality on their two-year-old daughter, Betty June stabbing and strangling her to death. The exact details of that tragic day remain shrouded in darkness, but what is clear is the devastating outcome of Starkweather's visit. In the aftermath of the carnage, a sign was cruelly posted on the Bartlett's door, falsely claiming illness in the household to keep people away. Starkweather and Carol Ann would spend days staying in the house surrounded by the lifeless bodies of Carol's family. The extent of Carol's involvement in these heinous acts remains a matter of debate. While she insists, both then and now, that she was not a willing participant, but rather Starkweather's hostage, Starkweather has maintained a different narrative. Regardless of the debate over Carol's culpability, one chilling truth emerges. 
she was present throughout Starkweather's subsequent murder spree that would unfold over the course of January 1958. At one point, Carol's grandma thought there might be a problem at the property, and she would go to the police with her concerns. However, when the police arrived and Carol appeared okay, they took her word that everything was all right. And on January 27th, Charles and Carol would take off, knowing the police would have to return at some point. Rodney Starkweather would begin searching for his brother, and he would be the one who discovered the remains of Marion in the chicken coop and Belda in the outhouse. Both had been stabbed and shot. And only one month away from turning three, they found Betty Jean placed in a cardboard box next to her mother. Now, following his belief that all suspicions had dissipated, Starkweather would bring Carol Ann to the 70-year-old August Meyer of family acquaintances' home, where Charles would proceed to kill him with a shotgun as well as his dog. After that, Starkweather tried to leave the property with Carol, but two teens, Robert Jensen and Carol King, stopped to assist when Charles drove his car into the mud. He would take advantage of their kindness by shooting Jensen dead. He tried, but was unable to rape King before killing her as well. Carol flatly refused Charles' later allegation that she had been the one to shoot King to death. On the morning of January 28, 1958, they would drive back to Lincoln in Jensen's automobile and would knock on the door of one of the largest and most elegant homes on Starkweather's former garbage route, the residence of C. Lore and Clara Ward. Because Starkweather had shoveled snow for the family previously, he was allowed inside by the housekeeper, Lillian. Afterwards, he said that Lillian had attacked him with a revolver and that he had to restrain her to protect himself. But in the end, Lillian and Clara were both fatally stabbed and bound. Clara's husband would also be murdered when he returned home. Charles and Carol would rob the home and search for a new getaway vehicle. At this point, 10 lives had been lost in two months due to Charles' disregard for human life, nine of them in the last few days alone. And before everything ended, there'd be one more death. The climax of Starkweather's rampage occurred in Douglas, Wyoming, as he and Carol Ann sought to evade capture and continue their deadly escapade. It was January 29, 1958, when Starkweather and Carol encountered Merle Collison, an unsuspecting traveling shoe salesman who had parked his Buick just outside of Douglas for a nap. The notorious duo, driven by their twisted desires and a need for transportation, would fatally shoot Collison to seize his car. However, Starkweather's unfamiliarity with the Buick's brake mechanism led to an unexpected turn of events. The car would stall repeatedly as as he attempted to drive away, catching the attention of a passing Good Samaritan, Joe Sprinkle. Joe, unaware of the danger he was walking into, stopped to offer his assistance. And a life-altering altercation unfolded, as Starkweather threatened Joe with a gun. The situation escalated, until Natrona County Sheriff's Deputy William Romer arrived at the scene. Carol seized the opportunity, ran towards the deputy, and identified Charles as a murderer. Charles, unwilling to surrender without a fight, initiated a high-speed chase with the deputies. The chase reached speeds exceeding 100 miles per hour through downtown Douglas, Wyoming. It took a dramatic turn when one of the law enforcement officers managed to shoot out Starkweather's windshield, injuring him and causing him to believe he was bleeding to death. Fearing for his life, he pulled over, leading to his arrest. 
According to MargaritaForAllThat'sInteresting.com, one of the arresting officers recalled, he thought he was bleeding to death. That's why he stopped. That's the kind of yellow son of a bitch he is. The duo who had already crossed into Wyoming was now in custody, ending a spree of violence that had claimed the lives of 11 innocent victims. When Charles was brought up on charges, it was for the murder of Robert Jensen. Starkweather, perhaps underestimating the severity of the charge, willingly chose to be extradited from Wyoming to Nebraska. His assumption was that the governor's stance against the death penalty would spare him, but that turned out to be a grave miscalculation. The governor, once against capital punishment, changed his stance specifically for Charles. At trial, Charles' narrative took erratic turns. Initially, he claimed that Carol Ann was not present at the scenes of the crime. Later, he would shift to portraying her as a willing participant. His defense even attempted to argue that he was legally insane, but the jury remained unconvinced. The trial painted a picture of Starkweather's manipulation and shifting stories. The jury, consisting of eight women and four men, found him guilty of murder, and the subsequent sentence was all too predictable. Death by electrocution. It's worth noting that Starkweather and Carol were held in separate prisons throughout the trial. Starkweather's bitterness escalated when he learned that Carol's lawyers were urging her to distance herself from him entirely. And on June 25, 1959, Charles Starkweather met his end in the electric chair at the Nebraska State Penitentiary. Governor Brooks did not intervene, as was expected. When the moment arrived, shortly after midnight, Charles showed no remorse. As he was put into Old Sparky by the guards, he made no last remarks. At exactly midnight, he entered and was wheeled out in less than 10 minutes. Charles' legacy lives on for the Starkweathers, the Fugates, and the families of his victims. Interestingly, or ironically, he shares Waikuka Cemetery in Lincoln with five of his victims as his final resting place. Unlike her partner in crime, Carol's story took unexpected turns through the legal system and beyond. Throughout her trial, she maintained a harrowing narrative, insisting that she was Charles's hostage, unaware that her own parents had fallen victim to his brutality. Carol claimed that Starkweather threatened to harm her family if she didn't comply with his deadly spree, leaving her too terrified to escape. However, the judge ruling on her case was unconvinced. Despite Carol's young age, she was just 15 when the trial began. The judge declared she had ample opportunities to escape and would sentence her to life in prison for her role in the crimes. At the time, she became the youngest person in American history to be tried for first-degree murder. Carol was paroled for good behavior after spending 18 years incarcerated. She'd eventually marry and change her name to Carol Ann Clare. In 2020, at the age of 76, she would once again attempt to obtain a pardon from the Nebraska Pardons Board. Unfortunately, again, her request was denied. Over the years, Carol had sought vindication through various means, including appearing on a lie detector test in 1983, which she passed. She also underwent hypnosis in 1989, asserting that she would kill herself if it turned out she had killed anyone. The tapes of the favorable hypnosis session were sent to media outlets across Nebraska. And despite the bitterness and skepticism surrounding her case, Carol continued to assert her innocence. The debate over Carol's culpability and her quest for redemption persisted, with some victims' families expressing anger over her release. 
However, there were those who wrote letters on her behalf, including Liza Ward, the granddaughter of two of Starkweather's victims. Carol's life post-incarceration again included marriage to Fred Clare, a retired machinist. The couple would enjoy a happy life until Clare's tragic death in a car wreck six years later. And Carol, to this day, despite her frail health, does maintain her innocence. It's impossible to overlook the lasting impact that Charles and Carol had on history and the legacy that they've left behind. The Starkweather-Fugate saga remains a chilling reminder of the dark potential within the human psyche. Their legacy reaches beyond the courtroom, and their story has been the subject of numerous books, documentaries, and media portrayals attempting to unravel the complexities of their motivations and the enduring questions surrounding their actions. The chilling events surrounding Charles and Carol have woven themselves into the fabric of popular culture, leaving a mark that resonates even today. One notable example is Bruce Springsteen's iconic album, Nebraska. The haunting title track tells the story of Charles Starkweather's murderous spree and the dark underbelly of American society. Springsteen's lyrical storytelling captures the desperation and tragedy of the events, turning a spotlight on the stark realities of the human condition. We also have Billy Joel's chart-topping hit, We Didn't Start the Fire, another musical piece that references the Starkweather homicides. The influence of Starkweather and Fugate's story extends beyond the realm of music. Several films have drawn inspiration from their dark tale. We've got the Brad Pitt-Juliette Lewis film California that takes its cues from the Starkweather murders, exploring the unsettling dynamics of a couple on a cross-country killing spree. Oliver Stone's controversial film Natural Born Killers and Terrence Malick's 1973 classic Badlands are two more cinematic works that delve into the grim narrative of the Starkweather-Fugate case. These films again explore the complex psychology behind the crimes and their aftermath, reflecting society's enduring fascination with the darkest aspects of human nature. And we'll leave it there for today's episode. Thank you for joining us on this exploration of one of the most infamous criminal partnerships in history. The echoes of Charles and Carol Ann's actions continue to reverberate, serving as a somber reminder of the thin line between chaos and order in the human experience. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have feedback for us or a suggestion of a case or a criminal you'd like us to cover on an upcoming episode, you can reach us on Instagram at historicaltruecrimepod or by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.